was a full room. I was praying all morning long that it would be a super spreader event. Not like you would think. But the super spreading of grace and the spirit of God. Uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun. But I've really been looking forward to getting back to numbers. Getting back to the children of Israel. And those of you who know me know how much I love Wednesday nights. Um, and and I, I, I love it all. I love Sunday morning. I love Wednesday nights. But the, the teaching on Wednesday nights for me is so much more laid back as we just open the word and just let the Bible take us where it's going to take us. Let the Spirit teach us. And so we're in Numbers chapter 11. And tonight we rejoin the Israelites in the wilderness. Numbers in the wilderness, Bamidbar. They departed Mount Sinai. They are now on their way to the promised land, and I would love to tell you that the journey to Kadesh on the border of the promised land, usually an 11-day trek, was brief, pleasant, a nice family trip. I'd love to tell you that, but I can't. The grumbling started in early. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I'll just read this to you. The Apostle Paul said, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless... See, all that sounds like a pleasant family trip. All that sounds like it's, it's gearing up for a, a good journey. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Down in verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Paul continues, now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Now between verses 6 and 10, the apostle warns against idolatry, like we saw at the golden calf. That took place prior to their entry into the wilderness. Immorality, which we will see in this book. And putting God to the test as the people will do later on. But it all began with grumbling. We often don't think of grumbling and complaining as that big a deal. I mean, honestly, if you're human, you grumble. We've been at this for 6,000 years. We know how to complain. We know how to, you know, and, and the older I get, the more I can just kind of do that under my breath. Cheryl calls me on it. You're grumbling. I'm not even saying anything, just the, just the act, you know. But that's where it starts. That's where the downhill spiral in the wilderness of the sin of Israel begins with grumbling. It's as if it kicks open the door for the sin nature to take over and do its thing. We're going to see it in uh, the first three stops tonight as they journey toward the promised land. The first stop is called Tabera. Tabera means burning. The second stop is Kibrot Hata'aba, and that means <laughs> graves of greed. They knew how to name things. Wouldn't you love to grow up on that street? Graves of greed, uh, 26811, graves of greed. That's my house number. And then the third place is Hatzerot, 
And Hatzorot simply means settlement. So after the first two not-so-good stops, which are named after what happens at the stops, burning and graves of greed, they come to Hatzorot, which means settlement. And they settle there for a, for a season, for a bit, for a time. Of course, that's where sibling rivalry and jealousy then has to be settled. But it all begins with grumbling. Numbers 11, verse 1. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed of the outskirts of the camp. The people therefore cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died out. So the name of that place was called Tabera, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. They left the relative fertility of Mount Sinai, the, the relative safety too. They were, they were there up against the mountain. Really the only thing to fear there at Mount Sinai was the Lord himself. And that's a good fear. But fear from enemies, no problem. God's here. You know, fear from the elements, not a problem. They're in the shadow of the mountain and the Lord is protecting them. Fear from animals or, or attack of any kind. No, again, we're right here at the Mount of God and, and we're protected. But now they're out in the wilderness and the reality of the inhospitable desert begins to sink in. And you know, they had a choice here. They could have pressed into the Lord. Instead, they provoked him. They could have learned how to rely on his provision day in, day out. Instead, they rebelled against God's patience. Deuteronomy 9.22 reads that at Tabera and at Massa and at Kibrot Hata'ava, you provoked the Lord to wrath. Psalm 78.16 says he brought forth streams from the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers, yet they still continued to sin against him to rebel against the Most High in the desert. And, and, and if you've ever studied the journeys of the Israelites, you know rebellion marks the journey. Grumbling, complaining, that seems to be what they did. Unbelief, disobedience. But let me ask you this tonight. Do you think of complaining as rebellion? I mean, honestly, it's so common. I, I'm sure not just at my house. Complaining, griping, grumbling. It's, it's such an everyday thing. It's not really rebellion, is it? God thinks so. In fact, it's of serious enough concern to the Lord that as they began to grumble at Tabera, before it was named Tabera, he started burning. He began to burn at the outskirts of the camp. Why? Why does God have zero tolerance for something as seemingly innocuous as a little complaint here or there, a little bit of grumbling among the people? Hey, were they hot, tired, thirsty, hungry? Come on. But God has an issue with it. Why? I'll give you some things to think about at the outset here. Number one, grumbling discounts grace. Grumbling discounts grace. It devalues the gracious blessings of God in our lives as if we would say to the Lord, your provision really isn't good enough for me. I'm really not content in my circumstances. I'm not happy with the life that you've given me, Lord. You could do better. Grumbling discounts grace. See, the Bible tells us, Lamentations 3.22, the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. 
His compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. New compassions and grace and mercy, constant, flowing from the Lord. That's the reality. And when we grumble, we discount that. John 1.16 tells us for us of, of his fullness, that is the fullness of Christ, we have all received grace upon grace. As if the grace he's given us isn't enough, he gives more and more and more an abundance. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7, Paul says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. But grumbling discounts grace. Secondly, grumbling devours at the fringe. And this is serious business where the Lord is concerned. Grumbling devours at the fringe. Note this, the fire didn't burn from the tabernacle outward. Had it done so, the entire camp would have been consumed and it would have been over. What we see is the fire showing up at the outside. Earlier on, back in Leviticus chapter 10, remember Nadab and Abihu and how they, they pulled their shenanigans on ordination day and the fire exploded out of the tabernacle directly out and burned them to a crisp. But this time, there's grumbling in the camp and the fire sparks on the outskirts, outside and around, which I find really interesting. The word outskirts, kese, in Hebrew means at the end or the edge or the extremity. So all of a sudden, fire sparks around the outside of the camp of Israel as if it's a warning flash from God. Fire sparks up. There's anger, obvious anger. The people get it pretty quickly. They cry out to Moses. And then Moses cries out to the Lord and he puts the fire out. But it burns at the edges. And note this, in the first three verses, and it's, I think, a little more apparent in the Hebrew language, but it doesn't look like the fire burned any people. It looks like the fire simply burned around the edges. That it exploded up and was burning near the tents and near the people but not necessarily the people themselves. Still, who tends to be most quickly devoured by grumbling? And it's people on the outskirts. Not in the story, I'm making application. It's people on the fringe, in a church fellowship, in a family, in a gathering. It's people on the fringe who tend to get burned when we grumble. That's something we don't often think about, especially in the, in the church air arena. That those who have yet to come to faith in Jesus, but they're in attendance, begin to hear Christians grumbling and they say, well, that doesn't sound like something I want to be a part of. Or those who are immature or, or weak in their faith. You know, you know how you measure immaturity in faith? I'll tell you how. It's when you're still evaluating God based on his people. See, that's an immature faith. That's looking at human beings and going, well, well, see, that's those Christians. Well, that's an immature faith. And, and those who are young in the faith often will do that, which is why there are so many wounds and bruises and hurts in the church as people are evaluating God based on his people rather than evaluating God on God and recognizing the rest of us are all stinking sinners. But when grumbling takes place, those who are weak in faith tend to get burned. They get hurt by it. They, they don't understand what's going on. The fringe includes anyone who's on the outskirts, and the outskirts are what 
get burned. Ephesians 4.31, Paul writes, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Grumbling discounts grace, devours at the fringe, and number three, grumbling diminishes the light. It diminishes the light, specifically the light of a witness. Philippians 2.14, where we began tonight, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as what? Lights of the world. But when I'm grumbling, how bright can my light possibly be? When I'm complaining, even if I just think I'm complaining to a brother who understands, a sister who gets where I'm coming from, when I'm complaining, the light is dim. That is not the way we present a gracious God to a fallen world. So grumbling diminishes the light. As children of God, we need to ask ourselves and consider, how do our words, how do our spoken comments reveal the light of Christ within us? Before I speak, or as I'm speaking, are my words declaring the glory of God? Or are my words declaring the grumbling of man? By the way, what would fire on the outskirts of this camp make the people do? Run to the center. It would cause them to press into the Lord, to flee to the central part of the camp, which would be the tabernacle, which would be the presence of God. It would cause the people to do what God wanted them to do, and that is stop your grumbling and press into the Lord. Which, by the way, is always the best idea. If I am in a grumbling mood, and what's really ironic to me, and I guess I'll just be honest with you about this tonight, Tuesday, I come in on Tuesdays, and that's where I really start to dig for Wednesday night. And I came in Tuesday morning after having left the house grumbling about, I think, 17 or 18 different issues. Cheryl can verify that. I was like, we need to do this, and this is a problem here. What about that? I got to go to work. And I got in here, and I opened it up. Now, the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing eye. (laughs) Tagged. (laughs) We run to the center. It changed everything for me. My, my day got much better. My grumbling ceased, and I apologized later to my family. Just, you know, I'm so sorry. I, you know, I started out. Rah, rah, rah. And then I got in, and when I pressed into the Lord, and I had to. I mean, let's, let's, again, just be honest. I didn't come in Tuesday morning feeling all holy and spiritual. I had to because I had to be ready for tonight. But it took, what, five minutes, ten minutes of being in the Word and praying and the Lord revealing where my heart was that suddenly... Again, as I pressed in, all that complaining dissipated. It's the best thing when we can do when we're feeling grumpy is press into God. In fact, Yaakov chapter 4, verse 8, James 4, 8 tells us, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So that's a great way to overcome the grumbling that tends to be among us. Well, continuing on. So the fire burned out. They named the place Tibera. They're going to move on to the next spot. But verse 4 says, The rabble who were among them had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish. 
which we used to eat free in Egypt, you were slaves in Egypt. Oh, but the fish was free. And the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. Literally, our soul is dried up. There's nothing at all to look at except this manna. They were tired of the banana pancakes and the manicotti. Little manischewitz on the side. They didn't want any of this. And then I love how this is followed up with a description. Now the manna was like coriander seed and its appearance like that of bdellium. The people would go about and gather it and grind it between two millstones or beat it on the mortar or boil it in the pot, which means there are multiple uses for it. And they would make cakes with it and its taste was as the taste of cakes baked with oil. And when the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall with it. This repeated description very similar to the earlier description of manna that Moses has already given, he gives it again right here, almost as a contrast to their sour dispositions and greed and complaints and desire for something more. It's just not good enough. Again, it's discounting grace. God, the manna that you've provided for us every day since we left Egypt, that has been our provision constantly, proof positive that you are with us every morning. That manna, not good enough. We need something else. We need something else. And grumble, grumble, grumble. They complain, and the sweetness of the manna sours in their, again, their dispositions. What, by the way, let's just see this. What did the manna portray? It is Jesus. It is Jesus. In the New Testament, John chapter 6, verse 30, so they said to him, what then will you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. What are they asking for? They're asking for another free lunch. Because in John chapter 6, what has just happened just prior to, do, to this, the day before, Jesus fed the 5,000. And they went running after him to get a little more. It's that greed, it's that desire. Hey, he did it once, let's see him do it again. And the fact that he did it, brought bread like that, was impressive to them because the only other prophet ever to do that was Moses. At least the only other prophet present when it happened. Moses didn't actually do it himself. So they chase after Jesus. Hey, uh, uh, we got bread, our, our forefathers got bread out of heaven to eat. Hint, hint. Grumble, grumble. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven. It's my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And they said, Lord, always give us this bread. And you know there were some families opening up their picnic baskets and pulling out their utensils, ready for Jesus to do it again. And he said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger he who believes in me will never thirst. Down in verse 48, he says again, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also, which I will give for the life of the world, is my flesh. And they didn't get it. The Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? 
Jesus says, truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. See, that's the point. You take me in, and I, I will then abide in you. And he's drawing that picture, very graphic, obviously, of flesh and blood, but saying, take me in, digest me. And I will abide in you, and I will be with you, and you will be saved. And that's the bread of heaven. God's greatest provision was his own flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus was trying to explain. I am the bread of life. But you can shout till you're hoarse, and some people will still choose to starve to death. It's remarkable. It's like the beauty, go back here, Numbers 11, it's like the beauty of the manna, this sweet, tasty, sustaining bread. And yet they whined and complained, it's just not enough. They don't understand the manna. Again, back in verse four though, listen to this, it was the rabble who were among them had greedy desires or literally desired a desire. That's when lust is really bad, when you lust for lust, when you desire a desire. But you got to ask the question, who, who are the rabble? Who are these instigators, these pot stirrers? It's the only time this word is used in the Hebrew scriptures, the rabble, the ha-sapsup. Sapsup is rabble. In the King James translation, it says mixed multitude, but that's, that's not a good translation. That phrase is used elsewhere, we'll see. But rabble is, well, some will say it's the riffraff. It's the mixed multitude, it's the riffraff. These rabble rousers, literally what it means, and you might note this, it means those who were received or those who were brought in. We're talking about outsiders brought into the camp of Israel. These are non-Israelites. These are the people, Gentiles, who joined them when they left Egypt. The rabble-rousers, the rabble among them. And, and rabbles, you know, that's, again, our, our best English word, I guess, for this. But what it should say is those who were received, those who were brought in, had greedy desires. So it was the outsiders who were there in the camp of Israel. It was those Gentiles who, when the Israelites were departing Egypt, they either liked what they saw or maybe they saw an opportunity that they liked. And they wanted to take advantage of it. Or they wanted to be part of this people. And they came along, but they were trouble after a while. Exodus chapter 12, verse 37 says, The sons of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, uh, about 600,000 men on foot, aside from children, a mixed multitude. And there's the other place that mixed multitude is used. Here, the... Uh, here the word is sapsup. There the word for mixed multitude is areb rab. And so it's two different phrases. But we're talking about, again, those who went up with them. Those who were outsiders brought in. I need to say this gently because I don't mean to undermine in any way, shape, or form our call to bring the gospel to a lost world. Our call to evangelism, which is for every follower of Jesus. But we need to be wise in our invitations to the rabble. 
those who come along without faith, but they come along. And perhaps they're seeking to manipulate, or maybe they come with an agenda. Or maybe they come because they think they have to, but there's no faith there. Paul says to Titus, chapter 3, verse 10, reject a factious man after a first and a second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. There is a time where within the open arms of the church, you reject. You say, okay, enough of this. We're not going to put up with that. Paul says a factious man who has been warned, out he goes. John writes, 2 John uh, verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, do not receive him into your house. Do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Now, you hear verses like that, and maybe you hear me say, be wise in your invitations to the rabble. Don't just openly invite anyone. And that may sound judgmental, but my friends, it takes sound judgment to bring the gospel to the rabble. To bring the gospel into the world. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, you may know this verse well, do not be bound together with unbelievers. He doesn't say don't take the gospel to unbelievers. He says don't be bound together with unbelievers. We often apply that to marriage, but it's much more than marriage. It could be business associations. It could be a relationship where you're connected with someone in a deeper way than, than simply a casual friendship. Don't be bound together with the unbeliever. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? And here's the issue with the rabble. They have an appetite for fleshly things. They do not hunger after spiritual things. The greed, the desire is for flesh. And maybe you were there. See, when you're born in the flesh and you live in the flesh and the flesh is all you know, then your hunger and your desire is going to be carnal. It's going to be for the flesh. Jesus said the flesh profits nothing. He said it's the spirit who gives life. John 6, 63, the flesh profits nothing. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. Now, if you're bringing the gospel to someone who is not yet a believer and they're open and they're receptive and they're hearing and they're hungry for the spiritual things that you're bringing, man, keep going. But watch what the desires are. For Hebrews eleven six 6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must, number one, believe that he is. And secondly, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So here's what I'm saying. The invitation. The invitation is not come and get it. The invitation is come and be transformed. Come and be changed. Come and be born again. When you're ready to repent, that is to turn to God and to turn away from the desire of the flesh, then you're ready to begin to receive of the Spirit, to feed on spiritual things rather than fleshly things. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So they're complaining about the manna, and they bring it to Moses. Verse 10, now Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families. Each man at the doorway of his tent. This is absolutely 
pathetic. I mean, get a picture. We got warriors of Israel standing in the doorway of their tent. We're just so tired of the manna. We really need meat. Please, Moses. He's walking by going, I can't even believe what I'm hearing here. What is going on with these people? It started with the rabble. Where we get the phrase rabble rousers. It started with those who were stirring up the pot because they desired flesh. They wanted meat. And the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly and Moses was displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, why have you been so hard on your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you have laid the burden of all this people on me? Was it I who conceived all this people? Was it I who brought them forth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing infant to the land which you swore to their fathers? Where am I going to get meat to give all this people? For they weep before me saying, give us meat that we may eat. I alone am not able to carry all this people because it's too burdensome for me. So if you're going to deal thus with me, please kill me at once. <laughs> if I have found favor in your sight, do not let me see my wretchedness. When God's fire broke out on the outskirts of camp at Tibera, who'd the people cry out to? Moses. They didn't cry to God. They went to the man. And now their continued grumbling and whining and complaining is becoming miserable for Moses. It's all he's hearing. He is sick of it. He, he has had this going on now, coming on a couple of years, and he's just completely fed up to the point that he literally is at, on the verge of suicide, my friends. He is, we joke about it when he says, please kill me at once, but he meant it. He was wretched and ready to die. And so has been every man of God that I read about at one point or another in the scriptures. Moses, Elijah, David, Go right down the line, John the Baptist, the Apostle Paul. Every one of them had their moments where they were like, oh, I can't, I can't, I can't. I'd rather just die right now. Just, just take me out, put me out of my misery. To the point where Moses is saying, I'd rather die than see my own wretchedness. And I think part of that is, and you're going to see in a moment, what a humble man Moses truly was. He's seeing his own wretched response to their wretched grumbling, and he doesn't want to see it. I don't want to see myself sinning like they're sinning. I'd rather die, Lord. Or perhaps he's looking at the people and feeling like an utter failure because they were his responsibility, and look at this mess. Just, Father, take me out. I'm a wretch. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 7, 24, wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from this body of death? Listen, this is no good for the people. Obviously, it's not good for Moses. But Moses, as their leader, to be feeling this way, this is no good for the people. Hebrews 13, 17 reads, Obey your leaders and submit, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Unprofit when we are following the lead of others, 
who are following Christ, which is the only reason why we should ever follow the lead of any man. And we make them miserable, we suffer for it. Hurts us. But didn't the Lord know this would happen? I mean, God's got all foreknowledge, right? Didn't he understand that this is God? I mean, three million people in the wilderness. They're going to start to grumble. That's what people do. And it's all going to fall on Moses. Didn't he know? Why, why did the Lord allow this to get so heavy on the shoulders of Moses? I think he's letting Moses come to the end of himself. There's still a few things that Moses, the deliverer, the man of God, needs to learn. And one of them is that he is not adequate in and of himself to handle this. That these people are too many for him. That their grumbling is not something that he is equipped to deal with. And when Moses gets there, now he's ready for what God is about to do. Verse 16, the Lord therefore said to Moses, gather for me 70 men from the elders of Israel whom you know to be the elders of the people and their officers and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. Then I will come down and speak with you there and I will take of the spirit who is upon you and will put him upon them and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you will not bear it all alone. This is God's answer. What is it? The unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. God's answer for Moses dealing with this is he's now going to surround him with spirit-filled men. It's beautiful. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Because none of us were meant to do this alone. Certainly Moses was not. Certainly none of us are. Verse 18. Say to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, oh, that someone would give us meat to eat. For we were well off in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. You shall not eat one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. Because you've rejected the Lord who's among you and have wept before him, saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? Big Macs for breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day for a month. So much meat, they'd be sneezing steak. I just love the way God speaks here. He's the one who says it's going to be coming out of your noses. You ever gotten just kind of too stuffed on meat? I, I'm, I'm at the point in my life where I don't like a lot of meats. Chicken, okay. Some fish, but, but when we're talking like steak and burgers and all that, I, I, I like a good burger every now and then. But if I were to have a, a burger or, say, two for lunch and then walk in the door and Cheryl's cooking up steaks for dinner, I mean, after a while, meat just kind of gets to be a little too much. And God says, I'm going to give you so much meat. It's going to be all up in your mouths. And when you sneeze, guess where it's going to go? <laughs> And you're going to do this for a month. 
I, try it sometime. Right now, McDonald's and Oak Harbor is completely shut down. And, and what's amazing is they, they did, did a, little, uh, a little survey, and they're finding out people are more healthy. I'm, I'm not sure if there's a correlation. But, <laughs> but McDonald's is shut down right now. When it reopens, try this. Or, or if you live in Anacortes, try, okay, breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snacks for a month, 28 to 30 days, just go to McDonald's and eat there. Tell me how long that sounds good. Have you guys found this to, okay, I just gotta say, have you noticed that when you buy a McDonald's cheeseburger and you get it in a little bag and the fries come, you know, and you, and you put it in your car and you're starting to drive and it smells good and, and that first bite, mm, that's, that's a good little burger. That second bite, I just love me some McDonald's. And that third bite, you're like, this is disgusting, what am I doing? <laughs> have you had that experience? Okay, we're, let's get back to the story. So they're gonna be sneezing steak for a month, verse 21, but Moses said, the people among whom I am are 600,000 on foot. Yet you have said, I will give them meat so they may eat it for a whole month. Now, quick side note, 600,000 on foot is a round number that Moses is using for the 603,550 numbered fighting men of Israel. We saw that number back in Numbers chapter 1, verse 46. So he's referring to the men, the fighting men, so that's not including those who are under the age of 20, over the age of 60, and um, the wives as well. So we're talking three million people. I mean, easily two and a half to three million people here. But when he says the 600,000, that's what he's referring to there. And then in verse 22, he continues, should, should flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to be sufficient for them? Or should all the fish of the sea, the Red Sea, be gathered together for them to be sufficient for them? Where are we going to come up with this kind of meat, Lord? It's remarkable. This had happened one year prior. In fact, in the second month of the third year, we're now in the second month of the second year out from Egypt. In the second month of the, of the first year, God provided, do you remember, quail for the people. Tons of quail because they said, we're tired of manna. We want meat. So he provided meat. He had done it before. How often do you find yourself saying, Lord, how in the world are you going to do this? Forgetting the fact that he's done it before. That he's blessed you in this same way before. I just don't know if he can do it again. Moses is missing that. He's forgetting. Here's the thing. Quail annually migrate north across Arabia and Africa every year in the spring. They're so consistent that at least it used to be that the Arabs would go out there and were known to catch literally millions of quail every spring as they migrated through. And so this happened the year before and now God's saying he's going to provide meat again. It's the same time in the next year as they're traveling now through Saudi, what would be Saudi Arabia today. Moses must have just, I guess, spaced it. Forgotten that God knows how to provide for his people. Oh, okay. Well, so Rick, you're saying it's a migration, so there's no miracle here. No, no, there is. The miracle is that God is going to take this colossal covey of quail and blow them right into the camp of Israel. They're going to arrive, and the people will know where they came from. And if you turn over to Psalm 78, Psalm 78 in your Bibles, Psalms are pretty easy to find. Just let your Bible fall open to the middle, and you'll be close. Psalm 78, verse 26 
specifically said, well, I'll back up to verse 24. He rained down manna upon them to eat and gave them food or grain from heaven. Man did eat the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. I mean, he just provided and provided. But it wasn't enough. Grumble, grumble, complaint, complaint. And verse 26 says, Psalm 78, he caused the east wind to blow in the heavens and by his power he directed the south wind. When he rained meat, literally flesh, upon them like the dust, even winged fowl, and I guarantee you after a week or so of this, it was foul. Like the sand of the seas, then he let them fall in the midst of their camp round about their dwellings. You know what's interesting to me? Moses is saying, where are we going to get all this meat to satisfy this, this greedy desire of the people for flesh? Where are we going to get this, Lord? Do you realize that if the people had just been bringing thank offerings, they would have had meat to enjoy along with the manna, and this would not have been an issue? For the thank offering, that's the offering you bring where you bring the animal for offering and the Lord gets some of the meat and the priest gets some of the meat and the offerer gets some of the meat. There was meat in the camp, my friends. All they had to do was be thankful. Which tells me something else about grumbling and you might add this to our list of what we started with. Thanksgiving defeats grumbling. Thanksgiving defeats grumbling. Colossians 2 verse 6, therefore as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted, being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, how Paul, overflowing with gratitude. If they had been bringing the thank offering that they had the freedom to bring any time, with every fr uh, thank offering was a steak dinner. They wouldn't have needed meat if they had only been thankful. Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I can continue on from there, but I, stop and think about that. Are my prayers laced with thanksgiving or just with complaint? Bring the thanksgiving and you will have plenty to eat. Verse 23, the Lord said to Moses, is the Lord's power limited? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. Also he gathered 70 men of the elders of Israel and stationed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and he took of the spirit who was upon him and placed him on the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied. By the way, prophecy, especially in the Hebrew scriptures, is the key sign that the Holy Spirit is on a person. There are all kinds of spiritual gifts. Paul talks about 1 Corinthians 12. You know, in other places as well, Ephesians 4, uh, Romans 12. But the one gift that expressed the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer in the Older Testament was prophecy. And so the Spirit rested upon them and they prophesied, but they did not do it again. Why not? Why not give them the gift of prophecy and have, you know, 70 prophets along with Moses? And that's part of the reason, because Moses is the prophet. Because the focus of the prophecy is pinpoint here through 
Moses, and there's good reason for that, part of it being his humility. But Moses was the man who would speak for God. Moses was the prophet. So it makes sense that they would not prophesy again after this moment. Well, then why did they prophesy in the moment? So that the people would see and know the Spirit of God is on these men. It was a moment of proof. The power of God had come. It was not about the prestige of the position. Oh, you're one of the 70, so now you're a prophet. Ooh, no. They were just gathered around Moses, men who the entire camp knew now were witnesses of these men have the Spirit of God. And so they prophesied in the moment so that the people would know that God's Spirit rested on the 70. The verse 26 says, and I love this, but two men had remained in the camp, two who should have been among the 70. So you got the 68, really. God pours out his Spirit on the 68, and there's two still back at camp. And the name of one was Eldad, which means God loves. I like that name. And the other was Medad, which is just loves. And the Spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those who had been registered but had not gone out to the tent, and they prophesied in the camp. So a young man ran and told, told Moses, saying, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, which doesn't mean he didn't have parents, the attendant of Moses from his youth said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Then Moses returned to the camp, both he and the elders of Israel. Would that all the people were prophets. Why? Because if they're prophesying, they can't have any time to complain. Kind of hard to grumble and prophesy at the same time. So you're speaking the words of God, you're not going to be complaining about your lack. You're not going to be grumbling about your issues. But hey, Joshua isn't the only one who we've seen be jealous of the work of the Spirit somewhere else. There are men prophesying in the camp. Stop them. I mean, it's one thing for the gang right here, but the, no, they shouldn't be over there doing their own thing. Luke chapter 9, verse 46, the apostle John said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. He doesn't go to the bridge. Lord, this is not okay. He's talking about Jesus somewhere else. They're doing healings and miracles over here. People are getting saved down the road. We got to stop this. <laughs> Jesus says, do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. And the implication is where the name of Jesus is being spoken, let it be spoken. In fact, praise the Lord that the church down the street is preaching Jesus. Praise the Lord that there are multiple places in Oak Harbor and Accordus where people can walk in the door and find the love of God present there and the Spirit of God present there and the grace of God taught in the name of Jesus. Praise the Lord for that. This is not territoriality. The territory belongs to God, not you and not me. We're just here as servants in the house and he happens to have us in this fellowship, in this flock, but if it's going on elsewhere, praise God. The Lord. A lot of you guys don't know this, but during COVID and during the shutdown, when this church was closed, I became aware of another church that was open, and a bunch of people from here were going there. You know what I said about that? 
can't believe it. Stealing our members is just the wrong thing to do. Sick and tired of this church stuff. No. I immediately heard, and, and, and my reaction was, and I'm being honest with you about this. I was honest about the grumbling. I can be honest about something that make me look a little better. I said, praise the Lord. I was so thankful that those who wanted to gather and were not able to when our doors were closed were still gathering in the name of the Lord. Church is bigger than us, gang. We are a fellowship in the larger church body to which the Lord adds daily those who are being saved. Amen? So if Jesus is preached elsewhere, praise the Lord, that's the way it ought to be. Reality is in the Holy Spirit, there is no conflict of interest. If the Spirit is involved, then all he is interested in, truly, the Holy Spirit of the living God has one interest, and that is peaceful unity in the name of Jesus. That's what he's about. If I can narrow it down to just one thing. In fact, listen to this. The Apostle Paul, turn your Bibles over to 1 Corinthians for a moment, will you? 1 Corinthians, go to chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. First Corinthians is in the New Testament, comes right before 2 Corinthians, so that's helpful, right? First Corinthians chapter 12, Paul begins this whole section about spiritual gifts, and I would encourage you, if you're interested, if you're curious, if you're thinking, what, I want to learn more about the spiritual gifts, you don't need to call me up, just open your Bible to 1 Corinthians 12 and read through chapter 14. 12, 13, 14, read straight through. Sandwiched in the middle is the whole chapter on love, which is the purpose of all the gifts to begin with. But he starts off saying, 1 Corinthians 12, 1, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be unaware. You know that when we were pagans, when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit spirit so again if someone is preaching jesus it's because the spirit is working there it's because it's his business and he wants it done and so our response when it's preaching of jesus elsewhere than from here is praise the lord that's got to be by the spirit of the lord because you can't say jesus is lord except by the spirit of the lord but flip over to chapter 14 after talking about the spiritual gifts, and then going into the love chapter, the more excellent way. Paul says in chapter 14, verse 1, pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. One who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. And by the way, and I, I shared this with our staff today, that's not a negative He's not saying, so you should never speak in tongues or you shouldn't have a prayer language or any of that. That's a conversation we can have another time. But he's not denigrating that. He's just saying, this is the truth. If you're speaking in tongues and, and your mind is unfruitful, which he'll say later on, well, then that's between you and God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But, verse 3, one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. That is building up and encouraging and comforting. That's prophecy. Man, if you want to pray for any spiritual gift, pray for that one, that you can be someone who builds up 
and encourages and comforts your brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. We need more of that. Less grumbling, more prophecy. Because again, where people are prophesying in the name of the Lord, doing these things, building each other up and encouraging and comforting one another, where that's going on, grumbling doesn't have room. Grumbling's not going to be taking place. That's why Moses said, would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the, the Lord would put his spirit on them. Again, Paul says in verse 4, one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. That ought to be our focus. Remember, it's always don't do things just to please yourself, but have the interests of others at heart. That is the call to the Christian heart is that we would love others more than self, and in so doing, we would desire prophecy because that blesses everybody else. And that's our heart. I wish that you all spoke in tongues, Paul says, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the whole church may receive edifying. That's the point. And again, so Moses says, would that, would that all the Lord's people were prophets. Don't come telling me, Joshua, that Eldad and Medad shouldn't be doing this. I'm glad they are. I'm glad that the whole 70 are. I wish that all the people were. And by the way, listen again to what Moses said. He said that the Lord would put his spirit on them. So back in Numbers 11, Moses saying that is prophetic. Would that the Lord would put his spirit on all the people. And at Pentecost, he did. It started there. It continues to this day. Peter said, Acts chapter 2, verse 16, this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel, and it shall be in the last days. God says, I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. That is, anyone who wants it. Anyone who wants it. No matter how messed up or jacked up your life was in the past, man, if you want my spirit, all you got to do is come to me. I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men, men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they shall prophesy. So again, it's a sign right here that the Lord's spirit is upon the 70 because they're all prophesying. And Moses said, I'd love to see the whole camp doing that. Well, back in Numbers 11, verse 31. Here's the outcome. Now there went forth a wind from the Lord. You Bible students know wind is ruach in the Hebrew. And it translates either wind or spirit. Now there went forth a spirit from the Lord or a wind from the Lord. And either time that you see wind or spirit, ruach, both the wind and the spirit from the Lord indicates the divine hand of God at work. God's behind this. God is moving. He's the one doing this. And it brought quail from the sea and let them fall right beside the camp. About a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp, <laughs> about two cubits deep on the surface of the ground, the people spent all day and all night and all the next day gathering the quail. He who gathered least gathered ten homers. That'll win a baseball game every time. And they spread them out for themselves around the camp. Now, check this out. Piles and piles of quail. 
and said, Lord, we need meat. I'll give you meat. And he gave them meat. Piles of quail up to three feet deep is what we're talking about here. Breaking it down among the camp of Israel, we're talking about, a, about 102 gallons of meat per person. Or, uh, in, in more colloquial phrase, 200 buckets of KFC per person. Per person. Or, or maybe not KFC, maybe it'd be DFQ, desert fried quail. 200 buckets a person. This was an absolute crazy abundance and it must have been fun at first. But after about night three, when you're dreaming of quail, huh, and it's coming out your nostrils because you're so sick and tired of it. And verse 33 says, while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very severe plague. The word is makah. It means blow or wound. Or strike. Some say they ate themselves sick. Just eating all this quail. And after a while, they just started to get sick to their stomachs. Some say they, they choked on the meat. There was just so much of it. <laughs> Others say, well, maybe they contracted some kind of disease. You know, because the, while the meat was still in their mouths, maybe it was salmonella or, I don't know, bird flu. What happened here? I think it's pretty obvious that this was supernatural. This was a supernatural punishment. This wasn't just the outcome of too much bird meat. This was God doing something specifically. In fact, Psalm 106 verse 13 says, they quickly forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but craved intensely in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. So he gave them their request, but sent a wasting disease among them. King James translates that but sent them a leanness of soul. And that's what happens when we desire flesh, when we crave carnal things, our, it's empty. Our souls shrivel up. But when we, when we ingest the spirit of God, when we take in the bread of heaven, Jesus Christ, we're filled up, we're nourished, we're strengthened. The contrast is so obvious here. Verse 34 so the name of that place was called Kibrot Hata'ava because there they buried the people who had been greedy. Kibrot Hata'ava, graves of greed. And by the way, the people who had been greedy, the language indicates that it was primarily the rabble who were killed. Primarily the rabble who were dying of this supernatural strike. God clearing out the very source of the grumbling. Verse 35, from Kibrot Hata'ava, the people set out for Hatzarot, and they remained at Hatzarot. That is, they remained in the place of the settlement. So they settled there for a bit. It had been a needlessly painful journey so far when it could have been so sweet. Psalm 34, verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 84, 11, The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So thankfully, we're done with the grumbling and complaining. We can get that behind us 
and we can move on, and I wish that were the case, but chapter 12, verse 1, tells us that Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And note that, by the way, if you're reading in the King James Version and it says Ethiopian, that is incorrect. I'll explain why in a minute that that's important. But it needs to be, you need to note, the language is a Cushite woman, a woman from Cush. And someone say, well, Cush is Ethiopia, right? Hold your horses. Verse 2, and they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? And the Lord heard it. Verse 3, and it's written in parentheses. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. I've always loved that verse. Who wrote Torah? Moses. So we know Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth because Moses told us so. There you go. You know what? The Bible indicates clearly that Moses wrote Torah. So that verse being there means one of two things. Either someone like Joshua was inspired to editorialize and add it in a little bit later to Torah law, or more likely, and what I believe is, Moses wrote it. Moses sat down, and as he's pinning Torah, and he's inspired by the Holy Spirit to do so, he comes to this verse, and as he's writing, the Spirit says, I want you to write that Moses was a very humble man more than any man who was on the face of the earth. I can just see the conversation between Moses and the Lord. I'm not writing that. No, you need to write it right now. But Lord, you can't make me write that. Do you trust me, Moses? Well, yeah, you need to write it down. <laughs> and so we learned that he was a most humble man. And this, this may sound weird to you. I, I keep thinking this in my, own, in my own heart, that only a truly humble person, only a truly humble person really could write something like that. The prideful man. Well, the prideful man wouldn't say they were humble. The prideful man would say they were humble and glorious at the same time. They would go on and on about their feats and their greatness, you know. But only a humble man could, could say, I, I'm a humble man. I don't know. Maybe that sounds weird to you. It's just me. But 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 says, Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Moses didn't write according to his will. Moses wrote according to the Holy Spirit and wrote what he was told to write. And you would have to be a humble man to do that. Now, Miriam and Aaron are bad-mouthing their brother. The phrase here, they spoke against, in verse 1 in the Hebrew is va-te-deber. Uh, deber or debar is words or speaking. And va to deber means to speak in the negative or to speak away from. We might say behind his back. They're talking behind his back. And the Bible tells us what the reason, at least the reason they would give was for their chatter because of the Cushite woman. He married a Cushite woman and they disapproved of the marriage. Well, they're siblings. Of course they would. <laughs> So this whole family situation, they're going, bro, I can't believe he married her. What's he thinking? It's crazy. And some think what's going on here is that Zipporah, Moses' wife, had died. And so now Moses has remarried. Is it, is it polygamy? It's not polygamy. I, I'm 99.9% .9 sure of that. 
It's not polygamy. That's not part of what's going on here. Moses would know better. But so some will say, well, then Zipporah died, and now he marries this Cushite woman, and it immediately upset Miriam and Aaron. Here's the thing. If you look at the text, it was only as, re it was as recently as Exodus 18 at Mount Sinai that Jethro brought Zipporah and Moses' sons to him. So she would have had to have died like really quickly right there. She had just been reunited with her husband. We hear nothing about Zipporah dying. So I suggest to you that the Cushite woman is Zipporah. Zipporah, who was not an Israelite, she was a Midianite. So you got a problem. You got an ethnicity problem right there that could have irked Miriam and Aaron. She's a Midianite. Well, what are you marrying outside of Israel for? That's no good. Yeah, but Rick, what's, what about Cush? I thought Cush was Ethiopia and not Midian. Well, you would think, but there is a region in Midian that is called Kushan. In fact, Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 7. Habakkuk, I saw the tents of Kushan under distress, the tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. Kushan was in Midian. The Cushite woman, therefore, the Midianite woman who Moses married was Zipporah. So this is his wife. Now, and again, being a Midianite would be an issue, could be an issue for Aaron and, Mir and Miriam because she was not an Israelite. But you know what? It doesn't matter because the whole thing is a smokescreen for what was really going on. It really had nothing to do with the fact that Moses had married a Cushite and they disapproved of that. See, this is what we do when we grumble. We find a reason to justify our grumbling that we think is legit and then off we go grumbling. It had nothing to do with Moses' wife, what it had to do with based on their own words here, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses. What's that got to do with a Cushite woman? Has he not spoken through us as well? What's that got to do with Moses' marriage? Nothing. What it has to do with is a deep-seated envy. It wasn't a marriage problem. It was a heart problem. And God will address that. It happens in every family, the issue is the heart. We will try to tag it on something else. Well, he went here or she did that, and that's the problem, and then off we go, complaining about slandering, gossiping the person, not having all the information. And so there's envy here. And this, this envy happens in every family, as I said, even in the church family. Galatians chapter 5, verse 14 says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Envy and comparisons are one of the worst things that happen in church fellowships when we look, because we look with only partial information. You know, when we start to grumble about someone, we pick an issue and off we go. We don't have the whole story. And so we'll cloak it in prayer. Oh, well, we're praying for this person. No, you were talking about the person for an hour and a half and then you prayed for a couple of minutes. That's what you were doing. Or we'll whisper behind a person's back or behind closed doors. But check this out, five words, and the Lord heard it. They were speaking away from Moses. They were not in earshot of Moses, but God heard 
And the Cushite concern isn't even addressed by God. In fact, he addresses the heart. Verse 4, suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and Miriam, you three, come out to the tent of meeting. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. So the three of them came out. I remember my dad saying, Ron, Rick, downstairs, now. And we knew. Belt's coming off. We're in trouble. You three. And so they came out. Verse 5, then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent, and he called Aaron and Miriam. When they had both come forward, he said, hear now my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. And I love this. God goes in defense of Moses. Think about what's just happened. Moses is almost broken by the grumbling of the people. How's he going to feel to find out his own brother and sister are stabbing him in the back? God doesn't surround Moses with 70 men filled with his Holy Spirit this time. God himself stands as a shield for Moses. Awesome. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. That doesn't mean he sees the face of God. Remember, God said, you can't see my face and live, but he beholds the form of God. He's aware of God, the representation, if you will, of the Lord. And that's interesting, the form, the representation, because hmm, Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that he is the exact representation of God. Who is? Jesus. And perhaps Moses beheld the form of Jesus. But he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? And so the anger of the Lord burned against them and he departed. Now I can't even imagine what that was like. The anger of the Lord burning against them. The fierce heat of the anger of God. I wonder, did they feel it? Did their eyebrows curl up and their hair peel back? I mean, what was that like? Was it blinding light? They were going, oh, oh, the fierce anger, oh, the heat of the Lord. Did Aaron think he was about to be fired? (laughs) Like Nadab and Abihu were before? Is this it for me? Verse 10. But when the cloud had withdrawn from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous as white as snow. And as Aaron turned toward Miriam, behold, she was leprous. She had been green with envy. Now she's white as snow. Is this Miriam or is this Snow White? She's got leprosy all over her body. Now, we've talked about this leprosy before. This probably isn't the leprosy we think of, you know, with like the nerve endings damaged and all that. It's probably more like a psoriasis. It's a skin disorder. It it, it was a disorder at the time that they could be cleansed of. They would go outside the camp and they could come back into the camp once they were clean. And they had to offer offerings for it. But the question here is, Aaron turns toward Miriam and she is leprous. Why isn't Aaron? Well, because God's a bigot, that's why. Because he's a male chauvinist and the Bible is patriarchal and chauvinist. Come on. Why is it Miriam and not Aaron? Why wasn't Aaron punished? Well, I can tell you a couple of things. Number one, Aaron was the high priest of all Israel. And to punish the high priest would damage the entire 
group of Israel. But it's more than that. Trust me, Aaron was being punished looking at his sister in this state. You ever get that feeling? I would really rather it happen to me than happen to... I would much rather things happen to me than happen to my wife. My siblings, those who I love the most, don't do that. No, no, not, not that. No, I got it. But punish me, Lord. So Aaron's in that place, but, but it's more, it's more. Verse 11, Aaron said to Moses, Oh, my Lord, I beg you, do not account this sin to us. He's owning it. In which we have acted foolishly and in which we have sinned. Oh, do not let her be like one dead whose flesh is half eaten when he comes from his mother's womb. He's crying out on her behalf. Listen, the real reason that it was Miriam who was leprous and not Aaron is that we know Miriam was the instigator of the grumbling. It came from her. Look all the way back at verse 1. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. So you say, well, see, see, no. It's both of them speaking against. No. Spoke against is in the feminine singular, which tells us who the speaker was. It was Miriam. Miriam is the one who started this up. Miriam is the one who brought this. Miriam was the source originally of the bad-mouthing. Now, Aaron was along with her. He was listening. If At best, he was silent. At worst, he was fully agreeing. But in his silence, he was in agreement with his sister, and he realized he sinned and allowing her to go on and on. But she's the one who was speaking against her brother. Looking for a larger share of the leadership, which is interesting. But even for the envy, she's Moses' sister too. And in verse 13, Moses cried out to the Lord saying, Oh God, heal her, I pray. That's a humble man who doesn't condemn his sister but praise for her. I'd be so tempted to say, you got what you deserved. You want to be a leader in Israel? You're too flaky to lead. It's flaky because she's leprous, so there's going to be flakes. Got that? Okay, thanks. No, Moses cries out to the Lord in prayer for his sister, for his brother. Heal her, I pray. Verse 14, but the Lord said to Moses, if her father had but spit in her face, she would, not bear her sh- would she not bear her shame for seven days? So let her be shut up for seven days outside the camp, and afterward she may be received again. So Miriam was shut up outside the camp for seven days. <laughs> I like that. She complained against Moses, now she's shut up. Outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move on until Miriam was received again. What does that tell you? It tells you that she got healed. And this was seven days. It was a short seven-day punishment. She's outside the camp, but she was received again. And afterward, however, the people moved out from Hatzorot and camped in the wilderness of Paran. There is apparently healing. There is certainly Forgiveness. In fact, we find a wonderful little prophecy later on in the scriptures, Micah chapter 6, verse 4, that reads, Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. God declares, she was a leader of my people. And so she's honored as such later on. We'll stop there for tonight. 
But I have a couple more things I want to tell you as we finish this up to kind of sum it up. Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 10. It's just the next book over, so jump over there real quickly. Deuteronomy 34, verse 10. And as we pause here in the trek, understand that Moses, again, was more humble than any man who was on the face of the earth at that time. There was nobody more humble than Moses. In fact, Deuteronomy 34, 10 says, since that time, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face for all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, all his servants and all his land, and for all the mighty power and for all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. Moses was in a class by himself. That, that description of Moses rounds out the five books of Torah law. And we see this amazing call out of Moses. And yet, as great a man as Moses was, he's only a shadowy type of the far greater prophet. If you skip back a couple of pages to Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18. In verse 18... The Lord says, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen, that means a Hebrew, like you, Moses, and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Speaking again of the prophet. The prophet. Only two are called humble in the entire Bible. Did you know that? Of all the people in Scripture, two men are called humble. Moses, who refers to himself as the most humble man alive on the planet at the time. And Jesus, who refers to himself, Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, saying, I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It's so fascinating to me and I'm sure there are more parallels that you can draw, but quickly, if you just want to jot these down, note this. Both Moses and Jesus were envied by their siblings. Both shared that experience. We know Jesus' brothers were envious of him, rude to him, did not believe in him. You can read about that in John chapter 7. But we also know, interestingly, that of his extended family Israel, Matthew 27, 18 tells us, Pilate knew that because of envy, they had handed him over. His own people were envious of him. Even as Moses' brother and sister were envious of him. So they were both envied, envied by their siblings. Secondly, they were both encouraged by the voice of God from the cloud. As in chapter 12, God takes his stand on Moses' behalf and calls out Moses as his servant in all his household at Hatzerot. So Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17, 5, tells us a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And what's so cool about that moment is Moses was there with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, talking about Jesus' crucifixion and his coming departure. So the voice from the cloud takes a stand. What had just happened? Peter had just said, 
Lord, it's good that we're here. Let's build sukkahs, booths for Moses and Elijah, and of course, one for you, Jesus. And the father says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Establishing Jesus there by the voice of God. So both were envied by their siblings. Both were encouraged by the voice of God. Both entreated the Lord for their accusers. Moses obviously praying for Miriam. Jesus praying at Calvary, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Romans 8.34 tells us, who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Where another might say, you deserve leprosy or you deserve hell. Jesus takes a stand for his people and he entreats the Lord on our behalf. He was encouraged by the voice of God from the cloud. He was envied by his siblings, just as Moses was. But finally, note this, both Moses and Jesus engaged Gentile brides. Zipporah for Moses and the church for Jesus. Let us rejoice and be glad. Revelation 19, verse 7, and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and the bride, his bride, has made herself ready. Moses, to this point, was the most humble man on the face of the earth. But Jesus had not stepped on the face of the earth yet, not in his human form. And so Jesus, Jesus, Moses is just a shadow of the Messiah, just a type, just a picture. So I remind you what the Lord said back in chapter 12, verse 7, about Moses. He says, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. You know what the Hebrew pastor did with that? Hebrews chapter 3, verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant. He's referring to that verse. For a testimony of those things which were be to, to be spoken later, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the very end. John 1.17 tells us, for the law was given through Moses grace and truth were realized in Christ Jesus. And it's all about the grace. Let's pray. Father, we need your grace because we do have a tendency to grumble and we have a tendency to complain and the flesh rises up and wants more flesh and all the problems that we've seen in Israel, problems that, that your servant Paul said were examples for us here at the end of the age. Well, we see that. We not only see it in Israel, we see it in ourselves. But Lord, I am so thankful that we can come before you and we can confess our sin, our grumblings, our complaints and be clean because of your grace. That it is your grace, Lord Jesus, that supersedes and washes out my grumblings. And I pray, Father, as we consider these things and we think about Israel, that we would not cast a, an eye at them but rather, Father, look in the mirror and consider where we are before you. We come before you humble and repentant and desiring to be a people who don't grumble, but who love one another and love our Father. Father, we can do this because of your grace. It is your grace, Lord, that allows us to be clean before you again. Thank you so much for your word, Father. 
Lead us forward in the wilderness, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.